You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Welcome to Sojourn. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. It's my uh, joy and privilege to welcome you this morning um, and to proclaim the truth of God's Word from Job chapter uh, 42. And so um, if you're a guest, would again just like to reiterate the welcome that Liz uh, gave to you and would just highly encourage you uh, to engage with any one of those methods of connecting. We really do believe uh, that the church is first and foremost a people to belong to rather than simply uh, an event to attend on a Sunday. So um, make use of those. And of course, I'll be um, up here at the end of the gathering uh, available to ask questions. Uh, You might also catch me across the way in the gallery. So um, would would love to, to meet you and know you. Um, with that said, we're going to jump right, right into Job 42. We've got quite uh, a, a bit to do as we try to tie this magnificent book all together in, in one final uh, sermon. And, and, and what we have done, if you, if you haven't been here, um, we've been looking at the book of Job, really trying to answer one question, a question that I think, whether you are a Christian in the room this morning or whether you are not a Christian in the room this morning, um, you have probably asked, which is, if there is a God right? How can he be just when the world is filled with so much injustice, right? Or to make it more simple, if God is good, why is there evil, right? And so this morning, I I, I believe and hope and pray uh, that the Lord by his spirit um, will show us what he would have for us from his word. So let's pray and ask him to do that, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you uh, so much again just for this morning, for this opportunity uh, to be gathered together with the people of God, the people um, who by your grace through faith in the work of your son Jesus are now empowered by the Spirit um, to both enjoy the benefits of, of your salvation and to propagate the benefits of your salvation among the peoples of the earth so that your name might be glorified, so that your glory might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Father, I pray this morning that by your Spirit, we would catch a fresh vision of you. And I don't, don't mean that in a, in a strange or weird way. I just pray that as we gaze upon the Scriptures and as we see your character, Father, that the truth about you would be revealed to our hearts and we might be changed. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So here's what we've got to do, right? We've got to wrap up um, 42 chapters in the next 30 minutes. And so... Um, I will do my best uh, to do that and honor your time. So here's what happens, right? Here's what we've seen throughout the book. Um, We we are introduced in chapters 1 and 2 to this this man, Job, whom whom God has great affection for. He calls him his servant. He invites Satan to look at him um, as one of his faithful servants. And Satan essentially says he wouldn't be faithful if he didn't have X, Y, and Z, right? Job was well-respected, wealthy, and God allows Satan um, to afflict him. And, and he goes through a, a bunch of loss um, that's really not even fully sort of, sort of uh, articulated to us, all that, that he um, has lost during this season in his life. But the majority of the book is sort of this ongoing conversation uh, of Job asking to hear from the Lord and not hearing from him, but instead hearing from his stupid friends that are trying to explain all um, essentially all of the reasons why Job 
has deserved this suffering that has come upon him, right? And so it's this ongoing, very difficult conversation where Job is speaking, his friends are speaking, and all the while Job is just saying, God, would you come and answer me? And last week, right, uh, in, uh, over the course of really four chapters, right, God answers Job. He answers Job. And so Job has been silent up until this point um, for, for about the last 10 or 11 chapters, right? And, and this is going to be Job's response to God's response, right? So God essentially says, I, I'm God. Can you trust me? And this is Job's response, right? It says in verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this? that hides counsel without knowledge, right? So he's, that, that phrase right there, he's restating God's question of him, right? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, it's me. I have uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful me, wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes God again, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so Job's first response to this, to this hearing of a testimony about God from God himself, where God expounds his glory, his sovereignty, his power, his might, his strength, his orchestrating of all of the, the, the complexities and intricacies of the world. And Job's first response is, okay, God, I repent. But here's what I think makes that a little strange for us this morning, right? In that throughout the whole book, the, the, the 31 chapters where Job is dialoguing with us, he is doing what? He is maintaining his innocence, right? The whole conversation that's taken place up to this point is, Job, surely you did something wrong to earn your suffering. And Job saying, no, I swear, I haven't done anything wrong. And yet here, we see Job repenting. And so why? Why is it that Job repents? If you've been on this journey with us through the book of Job, most people would say that at this point, Job is essentially confessing um, a bad attitude, right? A touch of arrogance or maybe some mild blasphemy, right? But to cut straight to the chase, I really think there's, there's one main thing that, that Job is repenting of here, that he's confessing, and that's that his conception of God before was of a God that was too small. He needed this revelation of God, this vision of him to remind him of the fact that the God of the universe and the creator of all creatures is greater, grander, higher, and wiser than any mortal can imagine, much less begin to challenge. And so what Job is essentially saying here in these, these first few verses is, um, I didn't know what I was talking about. For all of Job's eloquence in his defense, for all of Job's great argument in his defense, he arrives at this place and he says, I don't know what I was talking about. In fact, not only did I not know what I was talking about, but I actually hid wisdom by my questions and by my complaints that were without knowledge. 
Job uttered what he did not understand. He said things which he did not know. So what's happening here is Job's repentance is reflecting for us what happens when the realities of God's power, God's holiness, and God's provision pull the rug out from under a person. It's the only appropriate response. In fact, uh, anytime you see someone uh, that, that has a vision of the Lord, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean this in that like they, you know, they, they saw a bearded man in a white robe, you know, in glory kind of thing. But when, they, when the truth of God, when they're confronted with the truth about God, whether that's in his, his written words for us, whether that's in His spoken word to us out of the whirlwind, which is what happens with Job, or whether that's in any other sphere, when the truth about God confronts us every single time in the Bible and every single time in our lives, the only appropriate response is repentance. Now, here's the thing. I think we read that verse, that verse 6, where Job says this, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And we think to ourselves, gosh, that sounds, that sounds very uncomfortable. And so we hear the word repentance and we attach these two experiences together and we go, man, repentance is not a thing that, that I want to do. Repentance is not a thing that, that I want to experience. I don't want to despise myself or sit in dust and ashes. But there is, there, there is an alternate translation here. Um, and I, I think that it will really help us to begin to understand why the Bible goes on to tell us later on that it's in God's kindness that He leads us to repentance, that it's in God's kindness that He brings Job to this place to this place sitting on the heap of dust and ashes and willingly saying, God, I didn't know what I was talking about. And so if you have an ESV Bible, it might actually even have uh, a little footnote there for you. You could read verse 6 this way, and so I'm just going to read it with the alternate translation. Therefore, right, he sees the Lord, therefore I despise myself and am comforted in dust and ashes. So what is it, what is this trying to do for us? You see, Job finds comfort in and through repentance. The comfort that he's been crying out for, this whole book, right? This whole book, his longing to be comforted. It's found not in the restoration of his material things or his human relationships, the comfort that he's been crying out for is found in this vision of God that he has in verse 5, and he finds comfort then among the dust and ashes, right? So remember, right, we, we read the whole chapter, and so we know that Job's restoration is yet to come, right? That there's, that there's all these things that are going to be returned to him, and not just returned to him, but in excess of what he used to have. But it's not, it's not after that that Job is saying, I found comfort. Job is sitting on the same ash heap that was the ruin of his family's home. Job is sitting in the same ash heap that was composed of the flakes of his crusted skin that he'd been scraping off with broken pottery. And it's in that place 
that Job says, I'm comforted in this moment. It's the kindness of the Lord that draws Job to repentance, that brings him to a place where repentance is not only needed, but repentance is also possible. Comfort is found in that place for Job. Amazing. Amazing that literally none of his affliction has been relieved yet. And he says, I've, I've been comforted sheerly in the presence of the Lord, in the knowledge of the Almighty, in the knowledge of the fact that he holds things that are too wonderful for me to understand. And so what happens with Job's repentance? Well, we can, we can know that from verse 7 that God accepts Job's confession. Right? He calls Job my servant in verse 7. Right? He says to the friends, you have not spoken of me what is right like my servant Job has. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we, we preached a sermon on Job 19, and, and Job says th- these great words. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we talked about how significant that word my is, Right? That Job knew he had a redeemer and that it wasn't an impersonal redeemer, that it wasn't a redeemer, but that it was his redeemer, right? And I think sometimes we look at this and we go, okay, so God is still kind of this like Job is my, my servant, and we look at that pejoratively. And yet when Job heard this, right, he would have been less focused on the word servant and more focused on the word my, that possessive word that God uses and, and, and calls really Job by the same name that he called him in chapters 1 and 2. When he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But the story's not over yet, right? God's grace is not just extended to Job. Right? Let's continue reading. What does it tell us? It tells us in verse 7 that uh, after the Lord had spoken to Job, he then went to Job's friends and he said, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 8, now therefore, right? So he's talking to the friends of Job, these miserable comforters. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Isn't this crazy, right? So not only is Job restored to servanthood in in God's fellowship, not only is Job brought near to God, not only is Job comforted by the words of God, but now Job's three friends, the miserable comforters, the antagonists of the book, well, they are extended grace as well, right? What does it say in verse 8? He, he gives them this instruction to go up to Job to offer a burnt offering in his presence and then to ask Job to pray for them. And he says, when Job prays for you, I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, right? 
So he says, look, friends, you guys have been, like Job said, you've been miserable comforters. You've been utterly unhelpful. You have spoken what is not true about me. But I've chosen not to deal with you according to your folly. Rather, he chooses to deal with them according to Job's prayer on their behalf, right? So this is, this is crazy. Think about this. In this moment, Job, right, who throughout the book has been crying out for a mediator, right? Someone to mediate his relationship with God now becomes a mediator himself. He mediates the relationship between the friends and God so that they might not be dealt with according to their folly, but dealt with according to his prayer on their behalf. That should sound familiar if you're a Christian in the room this morning. Is this not the gospel? In Jesus, we are dealt with by God, not according to our folly, but according to his prayer on our behalf. He mediates this new relationship between us and God. And so what is it? What is it that all of this is telling us? Well, I think the first thing that that we should look at here, at least in this little section, verses 7 through 9, is this. The first thing that this is telling us is that no one is beyond suffering. Right? Job is still considered God's servant. God described him as such in chapter 1. He describes himself as such in chapter 42. Nothing has changed. So it wasn't like Job was not God's servant and so he punished him and then Job repented and now he's a servant again. No, Job's always been God's servant. He just happened to be a servant who went through seasons. Seasons of prosperity and good. Seasons of suffering and difficulty. No one is beyond suffering. Not Job, not Jesus. The same is true for us. Suffering is the inevitability of a broken world. There is nobody in this room that will escape it. And everyone has to face it. Are there varying measures? Are there varying degrees of suffering? Of course, (laughs) absolutely. But there is no absence of it. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Not only that, right? If you're a Christian in the room, the New Testament tells us that for believers, or if we want to use a word that, that is appropriate for Job, servants of Jesus, servants of the Most High through Jesus, for us it is a guarantee. We suffer that we might share in Jesus' suffering. And so if no one is beyond suffering, and if it's especially guaranteed for us as Christians, as believers, that that will be something that we experience, that we walk through, then, beloved, let us not be surprised when suffering comes knocking at our doors. Let's face it. And we'll talk about how uh, in just a minute. But the second thing that I think this little collection of verses, just verses 7 through 9, are telling us is not only that 
that no one is beyond suffering, but that no one is beyond grace. Not Job's friends, not Jesus' murderers. The same is true for you. And so if you walked in this morning into this room with guilt and shame for uh, an offense to God that you, that you know is there, that you know you've perpetrated, that maybe you're even perpetrating right this very second, no one's beyond grace. I mean, can you, can you believe how astounding this is? Job gets the vindication that he's asked for. Job is justified, restored to relationship with God. And then all of a sudden, standing in front of him are his three friends who've been complete and utterly helpless, morons for the whole book. And, and God's going to deal with them according to your prayer on their behalf. And Job miraculously <laughs> offers the prayer on their behalf because he's satisfied with the restoration that he's been given and to extend it then to others, right? Jesus is the same way. Jesus gladly on the cross makes this appeal, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God is saying the same thing of the friends here. You guys don't know what you're doing. You acted in your folly, but I'm not going to deal with you accordingly. I'm going to deal with you according to the prayers of my servant Job. In the same way, in the same way, we act foolishly, moment by moment. And God says, I'm not going to deal with you according to that. I'm going to deal with you according to the prayers of my servant Jesus, my son Jesus, on your behalf. So what happens next, right? Verses 10 and 11 say this, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. So what, what's happened? What's happened here, right? Shalom for Job is restored. What is, what is shalom, right? It's a, it's a Hebrew word. Um, essentially, it, it could be broadly translated as peace, but in a holistic sense, right? So not just freedom from violence, but a, but a holistic peace, right? What has happened for Job is that spiritual, social, economic, and relational restoration have all come to pass right here in this moment. He's restored spiritually. He is in right relationship with God. All, all, all of the, the tension and maybe division that was perceived and felt by Job has been restored, right? Economically, he's restored. Relationally, he's restored to his brothers and to his sisters. All who had known him before have now come into his house. Spiritually, socially, economically, relationally, restored is Job. This is shalom. And it would, be, it would be wonderful to end here, right? But there's a nagging piece of verse 11 that we still have to deal with that I skipped. And in case you thought I was going to just try to sidestep it, I'm not. So here we go says in the latter half of verse 11, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. 
this idea of evil, also translated as disaster. Or I would, I would actually translate it as this, the loss of shalom. That the loss of shalom in Job's life, this, this, this spiritual, social, and economic, and relational prosperity that Job walked in before, but then lost in the, in, in the midst of the book, and that he's now restored to, that that loss of shalom was brought on by God. If God is a God of shalom, which is how, how, how God describes himself, a God of peace, right? How can he bring evil to one of his servants? I think there's, there's some, some, some nuance that we need to take in while also understanding that, that there's a way in which this will be, that we will be able, unable to understand this fully, that, that, it, that there is some sense in which we, like Job, when it comes to this question, have to say, I don't know what I'm talking about. But here's what I think that we can take from the context of the book and from the greater context of the Bible when we talk about how God interacts with evil. The first is this, we have to remember that what happened to Job was from God, but it was through Satan. And so God's not the active ingredient here. But this disaster, this evil that befalls Job, ultimately leads to Job's restoration and his redemption. In fact, a greater one, which is really the whole purpose of verses 12 through the rest of the chapter where it tells us about this great wealth that he's acquired. It's less about the number, like the author of Job doesn't care that you know that Job had 6,000 camels. He just wants you to know that he had a whole heck of a lot of camels. But so here's what I want to do, right? We're uncomfortable with God utilizing evil for good in the life of Job, I think, because Job is so much like us. But let's understand this through the lens of the death of Jesus, because the same thing is true of him right? Make no mistake, Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus' death was not some surprise to God. Oh my gosh, sent them my son. They murdered him. What now? Guess I'll raise him from the dead. That, it's, that's not how it happened. It was God's working that Jesus should die. It was God's working that Jesus should be forsaken by God, that the wrath of God would be poured out upon Jesus. All of that. In fact, Jesus affirms this, right? Jesus says He's about His Father's business. Jesus regularly tells the, uh, the disciples, hey, look, I'm going to die, yet they still don't understand it when it happens. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before He goes to the cross. What is He saying? He's saying, look, I know that this is your will and I know that it must be done, but I'm still going to ask, is there any other way? And knowing that the answer is no, He stands up and He faces His accusers. What happened to Jesus was from God, but it was through men. Make no mistake, 
men were responsible for that. But in it, God is working. The disaster that befell Jesus led not only to his restoration and redemption, but like Job, to an even greater one, one that includes his friends. So what we begin to see is that God's power is so great. His ways are so wondrous. His sovereignty is so comprehensive that even that which is intended or viewed as purely evil is somehow working out the sovereign plan of God's glory. Joseph confesses this after being betrayed by his brothers and sold into captivity when he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. So obviously we still have questions here, right? And this makes us uncomfortable, but what Job is asking us here is when God says, trust me, is that enough? Is that enough? That's the question that Satan poses at the beginning of the book, right? Will Job serve you without all of these other things? Will he trust you even when none of it makes sense? It's the same invitation that we are being given here, the same question that we are being asked. God is saying, is trust me enough? The invitation of Job is to answer that question, yes. It's to show us that he's worthy of our trust even when justice seems to have been lost forever. Right? It seems like after 30 some odd chapters that these friends are going to get away with their miserable comforting, that Job will never have his day of vindication, and yet here it comes. And I know that trust me isn't a popular answer, right? Certainly not a popular answer to, to suffering for those of us who are skeptical this morning because it doesn't explain everything fully, but it is the Christian answer. But let's zoom out here as, as we kind of conclude, because Job is not just a story about Job. I think we've entered into his circumstances, we've tried to really empathize with him, and I think we know a lot about who Job is and what his character is like and, and, and what it looks like for him to have much and to have little. And, and yet this book, like every other book in the Bible, is really just all about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the true and better Job who suffers as the truest servant of God and then loses all of his shalom all of his social, economic, relational, and spiritual equity in order that he might then be restored and now mediates a new covenant between God and his stupid friends. And now we're dealt with, not according to our folly, but according to his prayer on our behalf. And now we're invited to dine at his table and share in his wealth, just like what happens with Job and all those who had known him before. Jesus was the one who we considered stricken, afflicted, despised, and rejected by men. Jesus 
is the utterly rejected, not just rejected by men, but rejected also by God. And so what must we know after reading Job? Here's four things and then we'll be done. I'll try to keep them short. The first is this, suffering is not simple. There are complex factors that lead to suffering. Can our sin bring on suffering? Yes. Are there real consequences to, 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 to sin and do they include suffering? Yes. But that's certainly not the only answer. Job's miserable friends proved that. And so what that means for us is that we should look to empathize before we look to explain. Lest we hide counsel without knowledge. The second thing is this, we are limited. We're limited. We won't always know why suffering befalls the world, our nation, our city, our families, or even us. We don't have all of the answers. We don't see the full picture. So let's not act like we do. Another good reason to empathize before explaining, before even trying to explain. In fact, maybe we should just remove that as a desire altogether. Instead of looking for answers, let's look for what Job finds. Comfort in what? Beholding God for who He is. That's what we've been singing all all morning, right? How great Thou art. Be Thou my vision. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord. He is alive. The third thing is this. Suffering is an invitation to trust and it's a precursor to glory. I like what, I, I like what Dr. Martin Luther King said, but I, I think ultimately it's an, an incomplete statement. He said, the moral arc of the universe is bent towards justice. He says it's slow, but it's bent towards justice. And here's why I think it's, it's incomplete, because I think there's a, a more holistic um, view of history, which is this. The history of the universe is long, right? The history of the universe is long, but it's bent towards glory. In that all of what God is doing is, is, is headed headfirst into the glory of His name, the glory of His Son, and the glory of those who partake in that reality. That's what it's headed into. And so this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says for us. Verse 16, right? Suffering, an invitation to trust, and a precursor to glory. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does Job see that leads him to comfort in the midst of dust and ashes? He sees that which is unseen. 
He sees that God is sovereign. He sees that God is in control. He sees that God is powerful. He sees that God is working all things together for His glory. That is what we are being invited to see alongside of Him. We, like Job, will see God. And when we see God, we, like Job, will be utterly satisfied by His response, His answer to our questions. We, like Job, will respond in repentance for trying to explain things that were too wonderful for us to understand. We, like Job, will be restored, dealt with not according to our folly, but according to the prayer of our mediator. And like Job, our tears will be wiped away and we will see our sufferings as the means by which God brought us into His glory. And the fourth and final thing is this. I love what Job says in verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. So that means that God's glory is never at stake. It's never fighting a losing battle. And so here's what that means for you Christian in the room this morning. It means that when he says he chose you before the foundation of the world, that he did so in order that you would experience his glory. And that suffering now is a means by which we enter into his glory. It was true of Job. It was true of Jesus. It will be true of us. The affliction, this affliction is preparing for us. I love the distinction in that in 2 Corinthians, right? It doesn't say that this, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for. It says it's preparing for us. That's a huge difference, right? Suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. You see, Job is God's servant, who ultimately, as he serves God faithfully, even in the midst of suffering, propagates God's glory. God is glorified by Job's righteous living, right? Here's how I want you to think of suffering. Suffering is your servant producing in you the glory that God intends, producing for you the glory that God intends. Suffering is your servant that right now is setting the table for you in God's presence. And so we can trust Him. We can trust Him because like Job, we will receive more than we could ever have imagined, and not in the here and now, but in the comfort of His presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together again as your people, to be reminded, Lord, that you are glorious and good and generous and kind and merciful. And in all of those things, you lead us to repentance and you lead us, Lord, to see you for who you truly are, which is where we find comfort. Thank you for Jesus, our suffering servant. Lived the life we should have lived, died the death, we deserve to die, but is now risen in victory and, and, 
and comes to restore the shalom that we have broken. Thank you for the table that we can come to and be reminded physically that in Christ's body and in His blood, we have sustenance. We have what is needful for us to walk through the suffering of our day, even when we can't explain it all. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that you are good. Help us to sing, Lord, that your faithfulness is great and that your cross, when we survey it, is that captivating vision that we need to find comfort amidst the ashes of this world. And we long for your restoration, and we pray that you would come quickly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.